dismissed to children's worship at this time. And if you would uh, turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 8. Uh, last week we began a new series called I Am, looking at the, uh, the I Am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And I mentioned that there are seven such official statements, but we are looking at nine with a bonus two. I'm still waiting for somebody to identify what those two are. Some have come quite close. Nobody's quite got it yet. There is that special reward still hanging out there for anybody who gets those two bonus passages from John's gospel correct. All right, so John chapter 8, verse 12. And uh, before, we, before we read, let's bow together as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word. Oh, Lord, we have already been worshiping you as light that shines in the darkness. And I pray now, O oh Lord, as we come to your word, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might see more clearly and believe more deeply that Jesus is the light of the world. Lord, show us not only what that means, but may we have lives and hearts that are transformed by that truth and drawn more deeply into the knowledge and the understanding and the life-changing reality of what that means for us. Lord, give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear and give us hearts to receive this glorious truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So before we read, I'll just uh, mention a little bit my journey this, this week in trying to come up with a, uh, a message on this single verse. It's just one verse, John 8, verse 12. And uh, I started with really a kind of a, a whole biblical story, the whole... The whole uh, the whole of redemption history and how it's all told in terms of light and darkness. And, and I, I had done that for a good chunk of time and realized it was a dreadfully boring theological paper that would probably put you all to sleep. And so I scrapped it. And, uh, and then I thought, well, let me do, uh, let's, you know, John so focuses on the theme of light and darkness, so, so let's, let's go there instead and just see how this kind of fits in the, in the, just in the broader context of John's gospel, looking at all the references of light and darkness, and again, came up with a dreadfully boring theological paper. And so I decided instead to do something a little bit different, and we'll see if it turned out or not, but we're, that's the way we're going. Uh, if you're interested in those dreadfully boring theological papers, you can uh, talk to me, and I'd be happy to, uh, to put you to sleep sometime after the service. So John 8, verse 12, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. There is no guarantee, by the way, that this is not a dreadfully boring sermon. <laughs> Just... Just to put that out there. All right, John 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You may be seated. A few years ago, I was on a, a duck hunting trip in, in North Dakota 
and we had uh, done some scouting uh, during the day to find a spot that we hunt, and we found our spot and, and uh, got up very early the next morning to make our way out to that spot. And I was uh, riding in the truck with my dad, my dad's truck, and uh, it was in the very early morning like it typically is for duck hunting, so it was pitch black, pitch dark. And as we're driving in the early morning darkness, we were pulling behind our truck a, a trailer filled with all of our gear, a, a big uh, four-wheeler, big UTV, and all of our decoys, our waders and guns and all the stuff loaded up in this trailer. And we're going on one of the gravel roads. If you've ever been to North Dakota, you can picture this. You know, we were in the prairie pothole region, and so that's, it's a, a grid of gravel roads. Jim knows this really well. Uh, a grid of gravel roads dotted with, with little sloughs and, and farm fields all over the place. And so we were driving on one of these gravel roads, which we had thought was the right gravel road that we were supposed to be on. And if it was, if it had been the right road, uh, we would have gone straight through the upcoming intersection that we were coming to. And so we're going about 45, 50 miles an hour on this gravel road. And then we come to this intersection, which we thought went straight through. And we realized at the last second that it did not go straight through. In fact, it came to a T. And so at 45, 50 miles an hour, we, we blew through that intersection and came to a rather abrupt and jolting and rough stop in some farmer's field. And after our hearts finally stopped racing, we realized how much worse that incident could have been. We could easily have ended up in a slough, because there are sloughs everywhere in, North, in that part of North Dakota. We could have ended up uh, upside down in a ditch. Uh, I don't know how there wasn't a ditch there. Uh, we could have uh, smashed into a tree. Um, that would have been unlikely. There's not that many trees in North Dakota, but it could have smashed into a cow, maybe, you know, uh, something like that. We could have, it could have been a lot worse. And so we were thankful that we were lucky to come away with a little more than a good scare and, uh, unfortunately, a wrecked trailer. But that little incident reminded, it was one of many reminders throughout life that light is preferable to darkness, if we had been driving in the light of day, we would have seen very clearly that there was not a, 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 the road did not go straight through, that it was an intersection that came to a T. We would have not risked, had the danger of going off the road. And of course, this is true of other things in life as well. It's in the darkness that, that nightmares come and that our fear is heightened, which is why, of course, you hardly ever see, I don't think I've ever seen, well, I, I don't really watch horror movies anymore, but when I used to at times as a boy, never saw one that, was, that took place in the bright of day. They're always in the dark, and you always wonder, there's this girl who's scrambling around in the house, terrified, why does she just turn on the lights, right? Because the darkness heightens our sense of fear. It's in the darkness that the creepy creatures of the night are active, things like bats and spiders, which are my least favorite, and of course, scorpions. It's in the darkness that we grope around in our homes and the, the power goes out and, and we think, oh, I should have had a flashlight in the drawer next to the bed, but it's not there. And so you get up and you're, you're, you're fumbling around the house and you're banging your shins into coffee tables and bumping into walls and tripping over toys trying to find a flashlight so you can see your way about the home. And for all these reasons, our experience of the darkness often leaves us longing for the light of day. In our text this morning, Jesus speaks to, to this, this topic of, of darkness and light. And, and he really, as I looked at this, again, it's just one verse, but there's a lot packed into this one verse. And so I think in, in, this, in this brief word, these brief words of Jesus, we see a, a lofty claim and a profound promise and a life-changing call. 
So first his lofty claim. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, uh, to fully appreciate the significance of that claim and what, what makes it such a lofty claim, we have to understand the, the context in which it was spoken. So we know from uh, the previous chapter, from John chapter 7, that Jesus was, was teaching uh, at this time in the temple courts in Jerusalem during the Festival of Tabernacles which was one of the three great annual festivals that, that God had prescribed for his people to celebrate and one that the, the people had to pilgrimage to, to come to Jerusalem to, uh, to celebrate. And it was a seven-day festival during which the Jews remembered and celebrated God's presence with his people during their journey in the wilderness. That's what the Festival of Tabernacles was all about. And the festival itself was a very grand event. It was one of the highlights of the whole Jewish year, filled with music and, and dancing and singing and all, all kinds of, of celebration. The people of God would flood to Jerusalem from all across the land, and they would feast on great food, and they would dwell for those seven days in their makeshift uh, leafy shelters called uh, Sukkot, which is the plural, uh, meaning, uh, plural of, of Sukkah, meaning tabernacle. So it was the, the festival of Tabernacles, sometimes also called the Festival of Booths, and at times, as we'll see, the Festival of Lights. So they would do this, uh, they would they'd dwell in these, these, uh, these leafy shelters to commemorate how the people of God dwelled in tents during their 40 years in the wilderness, and how God dwelled among them during that time in his own tent, the tabernacle. And one of the most striking elements uh, probably, you know, of, of the festival, one of the most striking things of the Festival of Tabernacles was that it was a festival of lights. And so the, the highlight of the festival was the daily illumination of the temple. So every evening for those seven days, the people of God would gather at the temple courts. And in the temple courts, there were these four uh, massive, four huge candelabras. And these were not any ordinary candelabras. These were candelabras that were 75 feet tall. They were huge, massive, 75 feet foot tall candelabras, and they had huge arms at the top of them with these gigantic bowls that, that would be filled with oil. And it would take a 10-gallon drum of oil to fill each bowl, and there were multiple bowls, one in each of the, the arms on the, can, on the candelabra. So it was this, this huge, huge structure. And the people of God would gather around and they'd watch as the young men would carry these drums, these 10-gallon drums of oil up the 75-foot ladder to fill the bowls, and then they would light them on fire. And, and historians say that, and the, the Jewish uh, writings say that they would use the, uh, the pants, the, the pants of the priests as, as wicks to light, up, to light up the bowls. And when the candelabras were all lit, it was said that they illumined the whole city of Jerusalem so that not a single courtyard in the entire city was left untouched by the light. And this, of course, is not a uh, real picture, but this is a uh, depiction of what that might have looked like at that time. But even more brilliant than that, because the candelabras were, were more massive than you can really tell in this picture. And the windows in the temple were designed in such a way that they were uh, designed to project the light outward. So it just, it was this, this huge and brilliant display of light. And with 
the lighting of the candelabras, the great celebration would begin. The Levitical musicians would play their harps and their cymbals and their trumpets, and the people of God would take burning torches in their hands, and they would dance before the candelabras, singing songs of joy and praise. And so there was lights everywhere, torches everywhere, dancing going on everywhere. The lamps would burn, and the celebration would continue all through the night without stop until dawn. And many of the men at the festival would commit for that entire week to not sleep. They would just stay up all throughout the night with their torches burning all night long. And of course, the whole purpose of this great festival was to worship God. It was a very a completely and utterly God-centered occasion. They didn't just gather because they wanted a reason to sing and to dance and to, and to wave their sparklers in the air. It was a deeply theological celebration. The great lights at the festival were a powerful symbol of the light of God's glory. The Shekinah glory, the, the visible presence of God that filled the tabernacle in the days of Moses and that traveled with the people throughout the wilderness wanderings. And so the great illumination of the temple was a brilliant reminder of the glory of the presence of God. And now Jesus comes into this festival of lights and standing in the temple courts and the court of the women in the very place where those giant great candelabras were ablaze, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In other words, I am the fulfillment of all that these great lights symbolize. I am, the, I am the very glory of the presence of God in human flesh. As the glory of God's presence filled the tabernacle in the wilderness, so I am the glory of God's presence standing here in this temple. I mean, just think about that. Get that image in your minds for a moment. What a, a powerful image that must have been. I mean, if, if they had known what it truly was, who it really was standing there. The, the, the culmination, the fulfillment of all that the, the glory in the tabernacle, the, the, all that the tabernacle symbolized. And now here's Jesus, the living tabernacle, standing in the temple, saying, I am the light of the world. In fact, Jesus would say, I am the living temple, the one in whom all the fullness of God's glory dwells. Now, there are some who say, based on John 7, verse 37, where John says that it was the, the last day of the festival, if that is the, still the case here in John 8, then some have made the point that, that this, at the last day of the festival, the lights were no longer lit. And so there's sort of this, this letdown. You know, the festival's over, and, and man, the, the lights have been so great. And the kids are saying, man, uh, why, are the, you know, why, why are the lights? When can we have the lights again? And so the, sort of that, that letdown after the, after the festival is over and some say, we don't know for sure, but that if that was the case, in that moment, Jesus came in sort of that letdown of the, the lights no longer being there and says, I am the true light. And that those, those lights are nothing compared to what I am. I am the light of the world. It is indeed a lofty claim, a claim that identifies himself as one with the God of glory. And this lofty claim is then followed by a profound promise. Uh, Jesus said, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
And again, to fully appreciate the profundity of this promise, we have to hear it in the, in the context of the broader biblical story. So I'm going to take the, that dreadfully boring paper that I did and condense it into a very, very two-minute sketch for you this morning. Okay, so uh, you, you, can tell the enti- you, can, you can relate or tell the entire story of the Bible in terms of light and darkness. The whole drama of redemption history can be told in those terms. The story begins, of course, in the very beginning with creation itself. We read in Genesis chapter 1 that the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light and he separated the light from the darkness. And so the story of creation begins with light. It's the very first a uh, creative act of God was to speak light into existence. And of course, as John says in one of his letters, God himself is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And we who were made in his image were made then to reflect his light and to dwell in the light of his glorious presence. That's the first chapter of the story. That's creation. It starts with light. But as we know, Adam and Eve rebelled against God's light and they plunged all of humanity into a fallen condition. And the fall of humanity into sin is described throughout the Bible as a return to darkness. So Job, for example, said of those who remain in their sin, they grope in darkness, they stagger like drunkards with no light. And Paul says of those who chose the way of sin over the glory of God, those who exchanged the glory of God for their own ways of sin, he said their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so the promise of one, that's the second chapter, that's the fall. And so the promise of one who would bring the third chapter, redemption. This promise of redemption is spoken of as one who would bring the people back into the light. The prophet Isaiah anticipated his coming when he said, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And along comes Jesus, whose birth was announced in the darkness of night by an angel with the glory of the Lord lighting up the night sky. And John said of him, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so Paul would describe our redemption in Christ as a transfer then from darkness into light. He said that in Christ, the Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. And this great drama of redemption will then culminate in the final chapter in the new heaven and the new earth where John says the city will not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. And he says there will be no more night. So that is a very brief sketch of the whole biblical story. We were created to be in God's light We fell under the darkness of sin. Jesus came to bring us back into the light. And when he returns, we'll dwell with him forever in the light of his glory where there is no darkness and no more night at all. And so the promise of Jesus that that those who follow him will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life is a promise that for those who are in Christ, this is our story. That we are among those who have been brought from that dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. That we have crossed over from death to life and from condemnation to freedom, from, from emptiness to fullness. 
And what this means for us is that, is that the, the darkness has no claim on us. You know, the, the, the battle between darkness and light is, is, of course, not over yet. And I've mentioned this often throughout the last couple of years especially, but we, we've, we've felt it. I, I've felt it, that, that spiritual battle, that battle between the darkness and the light, that spiritual warfare, more so than any other time in my 16 years at this church. And so the battle is not over yet. It still rages on, and we find ourselves at the crux of that battle. Our struggle, as Paul says, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers of, and the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And the battle is real, and the, and the darkness threatens. And in fact, just last night, I, I, I often I, I've heard, and maybe some of you have heard this as well, and I've, it's been corroborated by other theologians and pastors and missionaries, but often at 3 o'clock in the morning is a, is a time when, when there's a, this battle seems to be uh, particularly intense. And I've had often at 3 o'clock in the morning waking up with a sense of, 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 of darkness. I had it when I started when I was on my internship, and we were doing some pretty significant spiritual warfare kinds of things with some people that were really in the, in the grip of, of a satanic influence and things like that. And so often at 3 o'clock in the morning, we would wake up with this, this jolting sense of, of, of that battle between the light and the darkness. Happened again last night, 3 o'clock in the morning. This, I had this, this dream, this sense of the, this sort of this piercing darkness that was lunging out at me. And so the, the, the battle is, is, is real. And the darkness threatens and it flexes and it tries to draw us in. But here's the thing. It has no ultimate power over us because we belong to the light and the darkness has not, as John says, and, and will not and cannot overcome it. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Man, I love that verse. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of the God who is himself light. And, and I've seen that again uh, uh, throughout, uh, again and again throughout my ministry. Just this past week, met with somebody who, uh, who was very clearly blinded by his unbelief. And I could very clearly see in him that the God of this age has blinded his mind because every time I would talk about the gospel and about who Jesus is and what God has done, and he always had an answer for everything, and always had this resistance, and he would not, and he could not, he could not see it. And he would not believe it. He would not embrace it. Well, what about this? And what about this? And what about that? It just seems so ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. And I can't wrap my mind around it. And I cannot believe that that's the way it could be. And the more we talk, the more I realize that the God of this age has blinded his mind. And he cannot see it. And he will not see it. Until and unless the Spirit opens his mind to see That's what the God of this age, the enemy, has done, blinded the minds of unbelievers. But we who have received Christ in true faith are not blinded. The blinders have been removed, they've been lifted, and they've been taken off, and therefore we do not remain in or belong to the darkness. As Paul goes on to say, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory 
displayed in the face of Christ. This is how the blinders come off. It is a creative event by the very God who spoke light into existence and separated light from the darkness in the very beginning in the first word of creation. And he does that again in the hearts of those to whom he has called to himself. He makes his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. In the cold waters of the Java Sea during World War II, a, uh, a destroyer was torpedoed and, and it was going down fast and 116 men were struggling for their lives in the, in the stormy, wavy, cold waters at night. And it seemed that all hope was gone until someone had the presence of mind to throw out a few uh, illuminated life preservers from that sinking ship. And the lights in those life preservers shined in the darkness. And they served as the means by which a rescue ship was able to locate them and to come out and to, and to bring them back in to safety at, at night. And so, as one of the men says, they were saved by the light. And the light to them was the light of life. And that's the promise for those who are in Christ, that we will never walk in darkness. Think of that, never walk in darkness. That the darkness has no claim on us, but we have the light of life. The, 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 the darkness will not, cannot, has not, will never overcome us. The spiritual forces of evil have no choice but to tremble before those who carry within them the light of Jesus. As Jesus would go on to say in John chapter 12, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And of course, like I said, this profound promise will find its ultimate fulfillment in the last day on the renewed earth when, as John says, there will be no more night and the Lamb is its lamp and there will be no more darkness and no more fear, and no more evil, and no more danger, and no more all those things that, that come with the darkness. There will be nothing but light and life in the glorious presence of our King. And so we've seen in these words of Jesus a lofty claim. We've seen a profound promise. But there's one last thing that I think is hidden in these words of Jesus, and that is a life-changing call. The profound promise he makes is not for everyone. In other words, Jesus doesn't say, I am the light of the world, and I have come so that no one will ever walk in darkness and everyone will have the light of life. That's not what he says. He says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. And the implication is clearly that if we don't follow him, then we do walk in darkness. John said in chapter 3, and I love the way he, he puts it, and it, it lays it out so clearly for us. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. You see, in our natural state, we walk in darkness and we love the darkness. Like all those, those bugs that live under the rocks, you know, and, and you, you lift up the rock and they all scr and scramble about just trying to get away from the light and get back into the darkness because they can't stand the light. That's what we're like in our sinful nature. We live in the darkness and we love the darkness. We crave the darkness. 
We're intoxicated by the darkness. We find pleasure in the darkness. And it's in the darkness that our evil deeds are not exposed. And so we want to remain there. Which again is why when you shine the light of Jesus into the life of somebody and they're still in that place of being in the darkness and loving the darkness, they, they, they reject, they want nothing to do with it. They reject it. They like those bugs. They, they show me the rock. Let me get back to my rock. But Jesus knows that what we most desperately need and what we most deeply crave, whether we realize it or not, is the light of life, which comes only to those who follow him. And so he he issues this life-changing call. Whoever follows me will, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the promise of light and life is for those who follow Jesus. So I may ask you this morning, do you know what it is to follow him? Do you know what it is to follow Jesus? I mean, Jesus himself makes it pretty clear throughout the Gospels, doesn't he? He says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. He said to the rich ruler, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then come follow me. Do you know what it is to follow Jesus? It's a forsaking of the self a turning away from the old way of life and all of its selfish desires and worldly pleasures and deeds of darkness. When Jesus called his first disciples, it meant for them dropping their nets, leaving behind everything, everything that was familiar, everything that they knew, everything that they they loved and, and, and was dear to them, leaving it all behind and abandoning themselves to Christ. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It's not a matter of casual adherence, which is where so many people, I think, are in the world today. Yeah, I'm a a believer. Yeah, I, I, I believe that. And it's just this sort of casual, loose association with the name of Jesus. Yeah, that, that would be my religious affiliation. That's not what, that's not what it means to follow Jesus. It's a matter of wholehearted devotion and discipleship. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Put to death the old self with all of its ambitions and desires and hand over the reins of your life to Christ and say, come into my heart and come into my life and take over and take control of, of all that I am and all that I have and all that I want and so that let your light transform my, my relationships and my thoughts and my desires and my dreams and my ambitions and my pursuits and everything. The call to follow Jesus is not a call to casual interest or to mere religious affiliation. It is a costly call. It's not a call to just dip your toes into the demands of discipleship and then sort of hobble through life with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, which again is where so many people are at, just like the people of Israel on Mount Carmel and they were hobbling between 
Should we serve Baal or should we serve God? We don't know. We see, we see good things in both. We kind of want them both. And so let's do both together at the same time. God is good. We'll kind of, you know, still, we can still be his people. We're going to kind of, we like the things we see in Baal too. And there's a lot of good stuff and, and, and enticing stuff over here. So let's just have it both ways. And what did Elijah say? He said, stop wavering. Stop hobbling through life between two opinions. Choose one or the other. If Baal is God, follow him. Go ahead. Fine. Give yourselves to Baal. If God is God, dish Baal and follow him. But make your choice. The call to discipleship, the call to follow, is not a call to hobble through life with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. It's a call to go all in, to take the plunge of complete surrender and total devotion. It's a call to disentangle ourselves from the things of darkness and to pursue the things of light. As Paul said, for you were once darkness. That's where you used to be. That's who you were. But now, he says, you are light in the Lord. If you've received Christ in true faith, you've been brought out of the darkness. You are light in the Lord. You were dark. You are light. So live as children of the light. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Why? Having been brought into the light, would you go back into the darkness? Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. To follow Christ is to give yourself fully to him. And to live all of life, not just a little corner of it, not a little piece over here, not just a Sunday morning time, but to live all of your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Which, of course, none of us do, which is why there's grace and renewal and forgiveness and cleansing and constant, relentless pursuit of our Father who keeps drawing us relentlessly into his light. As grand as the Festival of Tabernacles was, and as bright as those massive candelabras shined, it only lasted so long. After seven days, the music stopped, the celebration was over, the torches were out, the candelabras were out, and the brilliant lights no longer lit up the city. But Jesus said, I am the light of the world. My light is the very light of God's glory, and it's a light that never fades and never dies out and will never be extinguished by the darkness. And whoever follows me will live in this light forever, will never walk in darkness again, but will have the light of life. Let us abandon ourselves to him. And let his light always shine through us in the midst of our dark world. As the old hymn says, I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise, and all thy day be bright. I looked to Jesus, and I found in him my star, my sun, and in that light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. May it be so for us. Let's bow together. Oh, Lord Jesus, as we come before your throne in a time of silent prayer, Lord, we acknowledge you as the light of the world. 
And I pray, O oh Lord, in this, in this time of silent prayer and surrender, that you would hear our prayers in our hearts, O oh Lord, that you would draw us out of the darkness. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for the ways that we have returned to the darkness. And recaptivate and refuel and reignite our hearts with the light of Christ. That we may follow you, O oh Lord, with wholehearted devotion. Lord, hear our prayers. Lord, the Apostle Paul says that we are in Christ children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, he says. And since we belong to the day, he says, let us be sober and putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Oh, Lord, may we continue to see you more deeply and more clearly and more compellingly as the light of the world. And may we live more and more as children of the day with a hope of salvation and Christ alone is our helmet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.